welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we're back. We're back in the studio, and we got a lot of fun things in store for you. First off, Beacon Trial Revisited. That's Ancorafidib, Bidimetinib, and Cetuximab, and BRAF V600E Mutated Colorectal Cancer. You won't want to miss this. We've got the answer to one of several questions in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then I'm going to talk about one of the greatest drugs of all times. No, not imatinib, the second greatest drug, which is neratinib. Neratinib, the HER2-targeted drug that causes profuse diarrhea that is over $10,000 a month of therapy that is universally lousy drug that has never improved a clinical endpoint in the history of man. That's only improved surrogate endpoints. And it's back now with an approval in the metastatic space based on the NALA trial, which is a bad trial, which shows how low the bar at the FDA has gone. You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned to Plenary Session. But first, there's a little bit of an update. The author of this book, Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer, has bought back from the publisher the audio rights to the book. And why did I do that? Because, as requested, I am going to have out very soon an audiobook, unabridged, as read by the author, Malignant, read by me. And it's coming. It's coming really soon. I've been narrating it. So expect that. So if you like your books whispered in your ear, well, you won't get that. You'll get me reading in a normal reading voice. And actually, due to the constraints of audiobook, it's not going to be with as much emotion as I dictate this podcast. It's going to be rather muted within a very narrow decibel level, administered at a very meticulous and, and scripted pace, which is the requirement for audiobook format. It's nothing I can do about that. Nothing I can do about that. But nonetheless, you're going to get it in an audiobook format if that's the way you like it. So stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Beacon Trial. Well, we're back with Beacon in the letters to the editor. Now, you remember on a prior episode of Plenary Session, I took Beacon to task for being what I call the worst reported randomized trial I've ever read. And I stand by that. There was so much basic information omitted from the trial, such as what percent of people had previously received oxaliplatin. But let me give you a little bit of a reminder. This is a randomized controlled trial of binimetinib, ancorafenib, and cetuximab, tested against dealer's choice of irinotecan cetuximab or fulfiri cetuximab for patients with BRAF V600 metastatic colorectal cancer in the second or subsequent line of therapy. So patients had to have at least one prior line of therapy. What were some of the problems I identified? Well, of course, um, arguably giving cetuximab in V600 disease is contraindicated. We already knew it's probably detrimental. 
Um, so it's uh, inappropriately used in the control arm. The next problem was the control arm uh, paired cetuximab with irinotecan. And one question I had was, is it possible, and I hypothesized that it is in fact had to be the case, that they were patients who enrolled on the Beacon trial who were treated with fulfiri or irinotecan containing regimens in the front line, never have ever received oxaliplatin, and now they're randomized to more irinotecan in the second line versus binimetinib and carafenib, cetuximab, or the doublet of binimetinib, cetuximab. And the answer, you know, based on my back of the envelope calculation, you'll have to go back and listen to the episode, was that almost surely, um, 100% sure that there were some people who had never gotten oxaliplatin in the front line. And that's a problem because you're not allowed to get oxaliplatin on protocol in this study. So the thought that you would have a patient with colon cancer going through two lines of therapy who's never received oxaliplatin and getting more irinotecan was just so ludicrous to me um, that that would be permitted and that would be encouraged and that would be allowed in a trial, uh, you know, something like that, which is just totally unethical and, and contrary to, to basic principles of treating patients with colon cancer. Well, I went to Twitter and I gave, uh, you know, many complaints about this trial. It was covered in a BMJ article. It was covered in some news stories. Um, but, you know, I decided to put my money where my mouth was and ask the authors to provide the information. So here's my letter to the editor that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. The investigators of the Beacon CRC trial report an overall survival advantage with encarafenib, binimetinib, and cetuximab over control regimen. Investigators' choice of irinotecan-containing chemotherapy plus cetuximab. The interpretation of these results requires additional information that was not provided in their article or in the protocol or in the supplementary appendix. What percentage of patients received adjuvant therapy? What adjuvant therapies were given? At what frequency? And for how many cycles? What drugs, as part of what regimens, at what frequency, and for how many cycles were given for the first-line treatment of metastatic disease? What was the median time from diagnosis of metastatic colorectal cancer to enrollment in the trial? What post-protocol therapies were given, line by line, at what frequency? Can the authors report the pre-trial and post-trial chemotherapy received by patients according to geographic region of enrollment? Finally, can the authors post a version of the protocol that does not contain redactions, which occur in the inclusion criteria and endpoint section of the document? So that was my question. The editors have a little note. The correct version of the protocol was posted with the full text of the article as soon as we learned that an incorrect redacted version was online. And they learned that because I made a big fuss about it. And I said something like that protocol looked a lot like the Mueller report after Bill Barr got a hands on it. So that was my question. I'm going to read you what their answer was, and you can tell me how many of my questions they answered. But first, there's another really clever letter to the editor by Filippo Pietrantonio from Milan, Italy. The good doctor writes, Despite the clear need for new treatment options for patients with microsatellite-stable BRAF-mutated metastatic colon cancer, immune checkpoint inhibitors have provided long-term disease control in patients with metastatic colon cancer with a high level of microsatellite instability. How many of the patients on your clinical trial had microsatellite instability high, MSI high tumors, and you didn't give them? Checkpoint inhibitors, that was the question, bottom line. So here are their answers. Prasad requests additional information about the patient's backgrounds. A total of 11% of the patients in the trial had received adjuvant therapy previously. And then I believe I asked another question, which they are not going to answer. My next question was, what adjuvant therapies were given at what frequency and for how many cycles? And they write, 11% got adjuvant therapy. And then they move on. First-line therapy for patients who had undergone randomization in our trial reflected existing patterns of care, with more than 90% of patients having received a fluoropyrimidine and oxaliplatin previously. 
Patients were stratified according to previous IRENO-TCAN use, and results from the trial suggested that patients benefited from the triplet or doublet therapy regardless of previous IRENO-TCAN treatment. Therapies administered after progression were consistent with the absence of meaningful active therapy, with the most common being fluorouracil and IRENO-TCAN. All these factors were balanced across the groups and would not be expected to affect this trial of salvage therapy because these characteristics have not been shown to influence the natural history in patients with relapsed BRAF mutated metastatic colon cancer. And then they ask, what percent of patients had MSI high? Less than 20% of patients who have BRAF V600 have MSI high. And that's consistent with our trial. And the hazard ratio is the same in both those groups. Okay, so they are really doing a slick job of avoiding the issue at hand. So one, they admit that 10% of the people on this study had never received oxaliplatin. They also admit that after they come off this study, they're not getting oxaliplatin either, with the most common therapies being administered off study, 5-FU and irenotecan. They are running this trial in settings globally where it appears the only things available are 5-FU and irenotecan. They're not telling you, as I have asked clearly in my letter, what drugs were given line by line at what frequency. The authors are not answering the other questions that I have asked. What adjuvant therapies were given at what frequency and for how many cycles? So how many people got 5-FU and how many people got Folfox? And I sure as hell hope nobody got irenotecan in the adjuvant setting, but I want them to state that clearly. Uh, of course, that would not be indicated. That's the negative randomized trial data. What drugs, as part of what regimens and at what frequency for how many cycles were given the frontline treatment of metastatic disease? They just say 90% had gotten some oxaliplatin. That's not quite answering my question. You see, I spent a lot of time writing my question so that it would be the way a lawyer would interrogate somebody on the stand. I want this information. I want all this information. And they have given almost none of the information I asked for. Almost none of it. But they did betray the fact they are taking people who have never gotten oxaliplatin and they're putting them on this randomized trial where they're not going to be permitted to get oxaliplatin on the control arm. That is totally crazy. You can't have a colon cancer patient and not give them oxaliplatin in the front line and not give them it in the second line either. That is simply malpractice even. That's wrong. This is an unethical trial unethical design. Every patient should have gotten oxaliplatin, and they're not getting it post-protocol, um, and, and they're people with MSI high tumors who are not getting uh, checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, this, is a, this is a totally questionable study. I mean, you don't really know that the beacon regiment, ancorafen, abinamet, and cetuximab, has an overall survival advantage over what you're actually doing in your clinic. That's the problem. You know it has a survival advantage over a straw man control arm in a global trial where people didn't get U.S. standard of care in the front line, and the authors are unwilling to tell you what adjuvant therapies were given and for how many cycles, and the authors are unwilling to tell you exactly what post-protocol therapies were given, and the authors are assuring you that it didn't matter if they got irenotecan taken before, the hazard ratio is the same, which is actually beside the point that's not really addressing the problem of the study. Um, this trial speaks to the problem with registration studies. This study is not asking whether or not, in my clinic, um, I should give the beacon regimen. And in fact, Here's a perfectly justifiable way to treat a patient in your clinic with BRAF V600. One, uh, full Fox Bev. Second line, full Fury Bev. Uh, third line, if they're MSI high, uh, give them checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, and then, uh, if they're not MSI high, maybe you could consider the beacon regimen. Maybe you could consider something else. But uh, do is the beacon regimen the default second line therapy and the basis of this trial? I think the answer is, uh, I don't know. I don't think one can conclude that strongly. So is the Beacon Regimen the default best choice second line regimen for somebody with V600 colorectal cancer? Who knows? Because the Beacon investigators are perfectly comfortable taking someone who's never gotten oxaliplatin as only 90% of patients had received a fluoropyrimidine and oxaliplatin, so 10% of them had not, and taking those people and giving them 
Irino Tican again and again and again without giving him oxaliplatin, which I think everyone out there will recognize is a huge problem with this study. Uh, they're not answering my questions. I mean, you can read my questions, you can read their answer, and you can ask how many of the 15 questions VPS got an answer to, and the answer is maybe two, maybe two questions I got an answer to. Um, this is unacceptable. And, and let's take a step back. Let's, let's put Beacon aside. Um, this is really one of the major problems with journals is that, you know, we have to take this data, we have to make decisions in the clinic, and no one is able to compel the investigators and the sponsors to answer questions that would allow us to critically appraise the article. The New England Journal of Medicine editors did not go back to these authors and say, listen, VP asked you 15 questions. Just give him the answers. You've answered two of the questions. You got to answer the 15 questions. We're not going to we're not going to let you print your letter unless you answer the 15 questions. We'll give you more space, but you got to answer these questions, my friends. Um, they should do that. That's what editors should do. And they should say that if you don't, we'll do that again. The next time your little company, Array, Array Pharmaceuticals, comes to us and you have a paper, we're going to uh, give it uh, the quick consideration because you don't play by the rules of this journal, which is when reasonable people who read the journal who we serve, because we, journals exist to serve the readers. They don't exist to serve the authors. I'm see, that's the classic misconception. The people who read our journal, who we serve, are asking you very simple, simple matter-of-fact questions in a letter to the editor, and you are shirking the majority of those questions. You're not answering those questions. And the reason, of course, they're not answering my questions is because if I had the answers to those questions, I'm sure it won't look good for them. It will not look good for them. That's likely why they're not answering the questions. That's the classic. You don't answer a question only if the answer is not favorable. They were, unfortunately, slipped up and gave one answer that is really not favorable to them, which is that more than 90%, but not 100%, more than 90% of patients had received a fluoropyrimidine on oxaliplatin previously. And once they enrolled on protocol, they were not allowed, if, even if they had not gotten it before, they were not allowed to get an oxaliplatin containing regimen. And that is very, 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 very bad. That is depriving somebody of a rock-solid standard of care that's been standard of care for over a decade um, in service of a contrived study. And the same thing is true probably for um, preventing them from getting uh, nivolumab or pembrolizumab if they have mismatch uh, repair deficiency or MSI high tumors. So that's also a problem. So on that positive note, the Beacon trial remains on my bad list. And on that note, we're going to turn to neratinib. Neratinib. Well, neratinib is a favorite drug around these parts. To my knowledge, and in fact, I know this to be true, and you'll find out in a forthcoming manuscript, that neratinib is the only drug that has ever received approval in the adjuvant space prior to the metastatic space. It's a unicorn in that way, and that's likely because it is an extremely marginal drug. Of course, neratinib in the adjuvant trial improves IDFS, a circuit endpoint, uh, by about uh, one to two percentage points. Um, and it does so in a group of people where if you take placebo, you have a 91.9% chance of, of not having an invasive disease-free survival event. And if you take Narelix, it goes up to 94.2%. Of course, 
IDFS and DFS have a very weak correlation with overall survival, meaning that it's a very uncertain surrogate endpoint. Uh, this magnitude of improvement in IDFS um, has a huge 95% confidence interval prediction of OS from anything from a loss of OS to an OS benefit. In fact, we really have no idea. So the FDA has shown that, you know, we're happy to take a drug where I believe um, over 30%, I think closer to 40% of people had grade three or four diarrhea, which is diarrhea that's an increase in stool seven from baseline. So add seven to how many times you go to the bathroom uh, or diarrhea that interferes with activities of daily living. So sort of a catastrophic toxicity. Um, and they allow the drug to be approved because it improves a surrogate endpoint, um, which is, I think, totally crazy to me. Um, is there any improvement in survival? Well, we have no idea. And we're going to use a surrogate endpoint that has a lousy correlation with overall survival. And we're going to accept uh, massive toxicity, even though we have a group of people who have a 90% uh, plus um, cure rate of this disease. Uh, this is sort of bad drug approvals 101. And of course, the drug costs over $10,000 a month, just adding insult to injury. Now, the makers are back, and they're back with a randomized control trial, NALA, N-A-L-A, randomized multicenter open-label clinical trial in patients, 621 with metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer who had received two or more prior anti-HER2-regimens in the metastatic setting. Now, of course, we know from Cleopatra that the de facto frontline regimen probably pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and ataxane. And we know from a randomized controlled trial of TDM1 versus lapatinib zolota uh, that TDM1 is probably your best second-line drug. So probably women with HER2-positive breast cancer should get... Um, Cleopatra regimen, then they should get TDM1, and then, and only then, when they progress on both those regimens, should they come to the third-line regimen. And, you know, you can debate what the third-line regimen should be. Should it be trastuzumab and a chemotherapy drug? Should it be lapatinib and sapecitabine? Um, I think it's not clear which of those is better. Uh, lapatinib, of course, plus um, Zolota, only slightly better than Zolota. And here, neratinib, Zolota, tries to compete against lapatinib, Zolota. I guess I would say that, you know, if you if you wanted to do this really fair, I think you could have had a study where, of course, you'd have to do this solely in the United States, which is, you know, where they're seeking regulatory approval, um, neratinib, Zolota versus, um, you know, investigator choice, which may be trastuzumab and, um, and some chemotherapy drug. Um, but of course, they go for lapatinib and Zolota, which, you know, is probably the weakest, the weakest of the bunch. Um, and they uh, find that there is, in fact, no overall survival advantage. Um, 21 months versus 19 months, p-value 0.2, uh, absolutely not significant. Um, but the co-primary endpoint, co-primary, because they're both equally important, uh, is progression-free survival. And progression-free survival improves from a median of 5.5 months to 5.6 months. Well, actually, the median doesn't improve really much at all. It looks like until you get to the median, the curves are really overlapping. But once they get to the median and they cross the median, then the curves appear to separate magically after the median. And at 12 months and 24 months, there's a separation in the curves. And the hazard ratio, which looks across the curve at all points in time, is 0.76, which is a confidence interval that goes from 0.63 to 0.93, and a p-value of 0.0. 0059. And that p-value of 0 0.0059 is lower than a p-value of 0 0.01, which is the amount of alpha that they allocated to progression-free survival. So the study, quote, the study was considered positive if either co-primary endpoint was met with a p less than 0.01 for PFS and a p less than 0.04 for overall survival. 
And the design also called for performing a pre-specified restricted means analysis if the assumption of constant proportional hazards was not shown. Well, well, well. So they slipped it in. They slipped it in under that cutoff, even though they had co-primary endpoints. What else do you need to know? I think you need to know that the drug, of course, had more. Drum roll, please. The drug had more diarrhea. Grade 3 diarrhea was 24% with neratinib, but only 13% with lapatinib. Surprise, surprise, surprise. It had more diarrhea, which we know is something that comes often as a side effect with neratinib. Uh, and what did patients receive prior to enrolling on the NALA study? Well, 38% had just gotten trastuzumab. 7.5% had gotten trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, but no TDM1. Uh, 20% had gotten trastuzumab and TDM1. And 35% had gotten what I think the optimal sequence would have been, trastuzumab plus pertuzumab, and then TDM1. So that's only 35%. All right. So why do I think this is important? Maybe roughly only one in three patients had received trastuzumab plus pertuzumab and then TDM1 before enrolling on this study. So already you were having, you know, weaker HER2-directed therapy than I think the U.S. standard. Um, and then, of course, you don't find an overall survival advantage, even though this is an extremely and highly lethal condition. Uh, third line, third plus line, HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, no survival benefit. You only have a PFS benefit with overlapping median progression-free survival and then only a difference that separates after the median. Um, I think this is, and, and you have bringing more diarrhea. Uh, this makes no sense. I mean, let's just, let's just say the goal of drug approval is to improve overall survival or health-related quality of life. Um, I find it hard to believe that this drug would improve health-related quality of life with its toxicity, and of course, there's no report of that. Um, and in terms of overall survival, it fails, simply put. There shouldn't be co-primary endpoints. The FDA should not allow progression-free survival, which is known to be a poor predictive factor for overall survival in metastatic breast cancer. You can check out the paper um, by myself and colleagues in JAM Internal Medicine 2015 on the strength of correlation between surrogates and survival. Metastatic breast cancer, PFS, poor predictor of OS. We know that. That's what led to Avastin. That's what led to that great debacle. Um, so yet they use this lousy surrogate endpoint uh, in the third line where you're not even speeding drugs to market. And if you don't believe me, uh, look up the paper by Emerson Chen and colleagues uh, that appears in JAMA Internal Medicine uh, about the speed with which surrogates bring drugs to market. Um, so you're not. I, so I don't see you bringing any speed. Um, you're not improving survival. You are. There's no report of quality of life. Uh, by the way, there's no article for me to read, so I'm piecing this together from you know the trade publications that litter that litter our mailboxes um, and uh, online reports. Um, you know, this is just not good enough. This is this is sort of disgraceful that the FDA is approving this drug, really costly drug, very toxic drug, drug that was approved twice now, has never shown it improves a patient-centered endpoint, has a lot of diarrhea, cost. $10,000 a month of therapy. Why, why, why are we doing this? And in a clinical study where it looks like only about one in three patients got appropriate HER2-directed therapy prior to enrolling on the study. And why does that matter? You know, obviously, if you have a HER2-directed agent, your ability to detect a difference in PFS or OS or response rate is contingent on whether or not people had maximal HER2-directed inhibition prior to your study. And if you really had people who had never gotten HER2-directed therapy, I am confident that HER2-directed therapy will have a greater response, longer PFS, than if you find people who've gotten all the appropriate therapy. And in this clinical study, I think it's a very simple thing they could do. Neratinib plus Zolota versus investigator choice when that's the choice of investigators in the United States. 
um, and not in this global setting where people may, um, due to sadly, due to cost considerations, not have access to the best available therapies, which is evident both by the prior lines of therapies patients experienced, as well as um, the fact that lapatinib zolota is the weakest comparator. Um, so, you know, the real problem with this approval is that it shifts the burden from people who consider evidence to marketing. And so now marketing will go into doctors' offices and detail them and, and push the prescriptions of neratinib, which to me is a drug that has yet to show a clinically meaningful benefit in any setting in cancer medicine. And as such, since it does not treat an unmet medical need, should not be approved. Um, it would be quicker for these authors to have taken all their alpha and powered the trial for overall survival. And in fact, they used four-fifths of the alpha for overall survival, but they don't find an overall survival signal, suggesting this drug does not improve survival over lapatinib zolota, which is not a great therapy by itself, even in a population of people who probably didn't receive adequate HER-directed therapy. So I don't know what to say about the NALA trial. I think it's emblematic. you got NALA, you've got POLO, which is a disgrace, PFS used in metastatic pancreas cancer when you halt fulfirinox therapy. You've got Selinexer, where there's a press report out this week from Cariofarm saying that we have a PFS benefit, Selinexer, Velcade Dex versus Velcade Dex. PFS, as if I care about PFS in fourth-line refractory myeloma. I care about OS. In third-line refractory HER2-positive breast cancer, I care about OS. I mean, the FDA has lowered the bar so low. We are getting drugs that may not even improve outcomes that matter to patients. And they are able to charge $100,000 plus on the U.S. market. This is a total failure of regulation. And the reason I'm so befuddled by it is, you know, how, how can the people who work at the FDA make this decision? And the only sensible answer I can come to that how a smart person could conclude that neratinib, based on a PFS benefit, median 5.6, 5.5, is worth getting approved the only thing I can make sense of is that the high rate of subsequent employment in the industry, which Jeff Bien and I found to be, you know, 60% of the people who leave the FDA go to work for pharmaceutical industry. And we've just had some two high profile, high profile, very high up in, in oncology drug products go to Merck and, and Johnson and Johnson. Um, and it's a continuum. It's just, you know, the revolving door. And to me, only the revolving door politics explains why you see an agency forget that their duty is to the public and not to the shareholders of uh, Puma Pharmaceuticals. Um, their duty is to patients with metastatic breast cancer who need drugs that improve survival. And if they don't improve survival, uh, they should not be approved. And uh, unless they improve quality of life, which this, of course, we have no report here. Uh, the next thing they need is they need drugs that are tested in studies that reflect patterns of care in the United States and that are not done globally where people are not getting optimal HER2-directed therapy. In fact, many of these patients have never gotten TDM1. How is that justifiable? We've known since 2012 that TDM1 has a survival benefit in HER2-positive breast cancer, and they're not getting TDM1 in this study. So, you know, I, I'm not sure what to, what to think here um, other than this is sort of catastrophic regulatory failure. And, and I could go on and on about this, and I do, in fact, on a forthcoming book entitled Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer. And I encourage people who are interested in this topic to check out Malignant because Malignant is a puzzle. It's a puzzle where there's 
there's eight or nine thematic pieces that I'm that I'm piecing together in a puzzle. And when all the pieces click together, the picture is inescapable. You know, I'm bringing in the picture of the hype, the financial conflict of interest, the standards for drug approval, the use of surrogate endpoints, surrogate endpoints that violate FDA-stated standards, such as the use of progression-free survival uh, when it is not strongly correlated with overall survival, getting a regular approval, as occurred with Everlimus and Eximestane and Bolero, uh, to the cost of the medications, the perverse incentives in the marketplace, the revolving door politics. And then the only conclusion that comes is a system that is not intended, designed, or meant to serve people with cancer. And that is the conclusion of malignant. And then it also tells you how you can, with as few changes as possible, reorient the entire compass of the system. So I encourage people to take a look at that. I will have more thoughts on the NALA trial when the publication appears. But right now, all I know, neratinib plus Zolota versus lapatinib and Zolota, tiny, tiny PFS benefit, no OS benefit, even though four-fifths of the alpha was meant for the OS. Getting FDA drug approval in defiance of all that makes sense uh, with more diarrhea than lapatinib uh, in a drug known for its diarrhea and its toxicity uh, and tremendously priced uh, makes no sense. Bad approval. Uh, shame on the FDA. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. David Carr. Dr. Carr is a pathologist, and he's doing his molecular pathology fellowship at UC San Diego. And he's here on the podcast because listeners have been clamoring for someone who is an expert in the technical arts of molecular biology to come on the podcast and tell us exactly where are we getting all these test results. So, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you're, you're the man behind the scenes. You're the person um, who plays an integral role in doing the important molecular laboratory testing uh, from PCR to NGS to you name it. You play a hand in that. Yeah, I think that's a good summary of what we do. We're definitely behind the scenes. And, um, you know, we do a wide range of, of testing in the lab, ranging from even some inherited disease stuff, uh, simple single gene oncology tests, you know, Jack 2 being a classic yeah. uh, for that. And then we also have a larger uh, NGS cancer panel. Um, so, yeah, we're overseeing all of that. I see. And your Jack 2, uh, is it uh, V617F uh, reflex to exon 12 or something like that? Um, we don't do exon 12 here, but yeah, that would kind of be the clinical workup. That, uh, that would be a send out for us here. I see. But yeah, the first test is specific to the V617F. I see. All right. So, so take us through. So, you know, what, what do listeners need to know that they, they don't know about um, DNA sequencing and particularly about NGS and how we're increasingly using that? How, how are these tests done? Yeah. Um, so I think... You know, really the thing to start with whenever we're talking about DNA sequencing is is to start with Sanger sequencing. Yeah. Um, you know, I know the hot topic right now is is next generation sequencing, but e even the name itself begs the question, well, what was the first generation <laughs> right. of sequencing? Right. And so um, the, the first generation is considered Sanger sequencing. Um, and it, it can be a little tricky to ex uh, explain without visual aids, but I'll, I'll definitely give it a try. Um, so really, Sanger sequencing takes advantage of our knowledge of, of DNA replication. And so we know that the base pairs um, are complementary to each other. 
So A's bind to T's and C's bind to G's. Um, and that allows basically a DNA strand to separate and use each of the two daughter strands as a template um, to form a new, basically two copies from a single copy of right, DNA. Right. Um, and sort of the important kind of biochemical factoid to remember here is that DNA replication proceeds in the five prime to three prime direction. Right. Um, and so that becomes important when we talk about the, the mechanism behind Sanger sequencing. Um, and so what Sanger sequencing does um, is use what's called uh, chain terminator nucleotides. Mm -hmm. And what that basically means is that at the three prime position, instead of being open to accept a new nucleotide, these nucleotides are blocked at that position. Um, and so what that allows you to do is after you've incorporated one of these chain terminator nucleotides, we label all of them with a fluorescent tag. So one color for each base. So one color for A, T, C, and G. And it basically allows us to figure out, well, which one of these chain terminator nucleotides was incorporated into the chain based off the color that we see. Mm -hmm. And so Sanger sequencing is basically... Um, a modified PCR reaction. So in PCR, we, we, you know, a lot of people might remember kind of that logarithmic graph that mm -hmm. we probably saw, um, you know, in our in our basic science classes, where you can form, you know, you know, kind of millions of copies of, of DNA. Yeah. And so what Sanger sequencing does is it modifies this reaction, and it uses a combination of normal nucleotides. Um, actually a predominance of normal nucleotides and a smaller portion of chain terminator nucleotides. Right. And what happens is that essentially through random incorporation, as we're forming these, you know, thousands or millions of copies of DNA, a chain terminator nucleotide will get incorporated into each position of our target DNA sequence. Right. And so position one, just by random chance, will incorporate a chain terminator. Um, in another chain, maybe the first nucleotide is a normal nucleotide, and the second nucleotide is a chain terminator. Right. Um, and so basically, because we're forming so many copies, and because of just random chance, we're going to get a chain terminator nucleotide in every at spot. each position. Yep. Exactly. Yep. yep. Yeah. And because we've labeled them with fluorescent tags, we then when we run it through our electrophoresis, we can figure out, hey, which base is located at each position of this sequence. And that's, that's basically what um, Sanger sequencing does. You know, there have been a lot of advances over the years in terms of making it more efficient, uh, but the underlying chemistry of it ha has been the same. And that's really well put. Uh, you're, you articulated that better than 99% uh, of people, I would say. That's really well put. And, and Sanger won the Nobel Prize for this, and, right? It's a, and it's his second Nobel Prize, I think, he won for Sanger sequencing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, okay, so this is the traditional Sanger sequencing um, by uh, virtue of sort of uh, randomness. Uh, you can use uh, chain terminating uh, nucleotides to, to stop uh, PCR at every single base, and thus you can figure out what's going on at every single base if you fluorescently label them. Uh, and what is next generation sequencing? What, what, how, how is it? What's new about it? Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's definitely the next question. And so the, the thing that I often like to start with um, actually is sort of what I consider, and what probably many other people consider, that really the culmination of Sanger sequencing, yeah. which was the Human Genome Project. Sure, sure. Um, and so the Human Genome Project was done with Sanger sequencing, and it took dozens of labs and hundreds of scientists 14 years to put out 
a completed sequence of the, the human genome. Uh, and so that was back in 2004. And 2004, not 2001, huh? Uh, you consider the definitive date for 2004. Yeah. Uh, there's some dispute there, my friend, but I see. <laughs> there I, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I agree with you, okay. Yeah. yeah, it depends on where you want to place your flag, I guess. <laughs> um, but for us on the molecular side, yeah, the, the completion of the genome was super important, filling in all the gaps. Um, so yeah, that was 2004, okay. but yeah, you're right. 2001 was the first draft genome. Yeah. Um, and so basically... Um, the reason that's so important is because the vast majority of our sequencing efforts and all of the clinical sequencing efforts through next generation sequencing are actually more appropriately called resequencing. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's called resequencing is because we're actually, through using computation and bioinformatics, we're actually using the underlying structure of the human genome that we now know because of the Human Genome Project to what we call MAP our next generation sequencing reads onto the human genome. So basically we'll get a sequence from next generation sequencing and we can figure out using computation um, where that sequence fits within the human genome that we've already, you know, sort of laid out the, the basics of. Um, and, and so that, that can be an important thing to remember. But, you know, moving, moving on to next generation sequencing, yeah you had asked kind of what the main advance is. Yeah. Really, the main advance of next-generation sequencing is multiplexing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously there was a lot of, you know, scientific and technological advancements that went into, um, you know, creating the platforms and the, the chemistry and the workflow for this. But I sort of like to think of next-generation sequencing as Sanger sequencing on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're really doing is we're taking a ton of uh, millions, really, of essentially individual Sanger sequencing reactions, and we're running them in parallel. Mm -hmm. um, and so, kind of the technical term that shows up on the molecular pathology side, you know, another word or another term for next generation sequencing is is called massively parallel resequencing. Right. And so that highlights the idea that we're performing sequencing in massive parallel. So we're performing millions of reactions at once. And we're not doing de novo sequencing, we're, we're resequencing. So we're using the structure of the human genome that we already know, and we're using that to map our next generation sequencing reads and figure out where they fit within the, um, you know, kind of the normal genome. And, you know, using the high-end sequencers now, a, a single next generation sequencing run can actually generate 40 times more sequence than the entire human genome project. I see, on a single run. A single run, which is sort of an astounding thing to think about, um, considering how long and how much money it took to, to, to complete the Human Genome Project. It's so interesting to me, one you know, interesting thing you raise is this question of, you know, if you were a lab in, you know, circa 2004, 2005, and you wanted to do sequencing, uh, sequencing back then uh, was arduous, a great deal of effort. Uh, it's become a whole lot easier. And one wonders, and, it, and of course, the cost has fallen precipitously. In fact, uh, it, it has fallen greater than Moore's Law. It's just, just really plummeted. And so I guess one question always with these sequencing efforts, particularly in those years, was, was it better to have spent that money in 2005? Or would it have been better just to wait two years and then use the latest available technology and do it in 2007 and save yourself a whole heck of a lot of time? You know, this sort of internal dilemma of uh, when, do you, when do you strike uh, as technology is continually getting better, especially when it's getting better, you know, beyond logarithmically. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a very interesting point because you know I, I really think it goes both ways in that you know in some sense our our push to complete the human genome helped it, us. It really did lay some of the groundwork yeah. uh, computationally for you know that we use within our bioinformatics now for next generation sequencing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's a it's a very important question because. You know, now I mean, sitting in the wings, not not necessarily ready to to strike the clinical world yet, but people are already talking about third generation sequencing, right, right. And, and different things like that. So, so I, I really do think it's a good question, and um, you know, I'm not sure I have the best answer for it. No, no, because... it's a philosophical, it's a philosophical question. Yeah, it ha I don't right. know if it has a good empirical answer, at least with the tools we have yet. But if you could answer it empirically, it'd be super interesting. Um, yeah. Okay, so tell us. Okay, so that's that's NGS, and um, and NGS is being ordered more than ever. We're doing more sequencing than we've done before. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in your in your pathology laboratory, let's say uh, a doctor is taking care of a cancer patient and they want to order a broad NGS. You're not. Are you going to look at a whole exome? Or are you going to look at sort of 300, 400 hotspot genes? How how do you do it? Um, yeah. So in our lab, we do not look at the whole exome. Um, we have, yes, yeah, what's considered, would be considered a targeted sequencing panel yeah. of, um, we had, we have separate panels currently for our solid tumors and our heme malignancies. Yeah. And so our solid, uh, tumor panel has just south of 400 genes in it. I don't remember the exact number. I see. Um, and then the heme panel has 126 genes. I see. Um, and so, yeah, we don't, we don't do whole exome sequencing, there's, you know, there's a lot of different complexities with what people choose to do and right. choose to report, actually. Right. right. But, um, for, you know, doing the whole exome sequencing, it, it, it uses a lot of our sequencing capacity on regions of the genome that we really don't understand. Um, and so from a, from a results point of view, an interpretation point of view, um, it, it's a lot easier to generate results with regions that are better studied. Right, at least results that we know how to interpret with the current sort of thinking. Uh, but yeah. I guess one of the things to acknowledge is that there can be, um, you know, you, you could potentially get a gene panel back and it'll say that there's nothing wrong with these 400 spots we've looked at, but there are mutations present in enhancer or promoter regions uh, outside of what you're sequencing that could potentially be mitigated through those genes. Fair to say? Um, yeah, I mean, we're out. Yeah, I mean, there's always a, I don't know if you're talking about exactly like off target yes. things that we find. Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, so that's that's something we run into. Um, and, you, you know, I think so one of the things that I would say from the from the molecular pathology point of view is when we're going through and interpreting variants, um, there's a lot of things that we wind up filtering out, which sometimes they're sequencing artifact. Um, sometimes they are changes in regions of the genome that we just really don't know how to interpret. Um, and so some of these the off-target sequ sequencing um, findings that we come across, they can be troublesome from our end to interpret, uh -huh. um, you know, because we don't want to withhold any information that, that could be useful or, you yeah. know, we're not disease-specific experts in right. any of these, these areas. And so it, it definitely can be tricky to figure out what to report and what not to. Um, you know, let me ask you this, that, yeah. not wanting to inundate people with information. Right, that exactly. And, and not depriving them of it as well. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's that, that, that highlights a huge challenge for us, especially as we push this, 
sequencing so quickly when there often isn't robust clinical evidence for a lot of these variants that we're interpreting. Let's say I give you a block of tissue and it's all cancer tissue. Um, uh, and let's say there's mutations only in 2% or 5% or 10% of the cancer cells. A certain mutation is only present in 2%. Um, what are the kinds of limits of your ability to discern? I mean, is there a is there a subclone that you won't see? Um, do you use some traditional filters? How how do you decide which which mutations to report back and and in what fraction of tumors uh, uh, or what fraction of the tumor do you, do you start to take it seriously? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so our cutoff that we use is we use what's called a five percent variant allele fraction. Yeah. Um, and so one of the important things to remember with the variant allele fraction is that because we have two copies of each gene, um, if you had 100% of cells with a certain variant that, that the patient was um, heterozygous for, the, the variant allele fraction would be 50%. 50%, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, the vast majority of somatic mutations that we're looking at in cancer are going to be heterozygous. And so... Um, we have a cutoff of 5%, meaning that it w we would expect it to be present in 10% of the cells mm -hmm. that are in the sample. Yeah. Um, and so we figure out that cutoff basically by, by running a lot of control samples um, that have already have documented mutations and, and people will often do dilution studies and there's sort of, you know, more accepted controls that we can use for that. And so somebody else has already figured out what the allele fraction is and, and we can figure out you know, you know, we essentially want to be finding close to 100% of variance at that cutoff. So we're running our analysis and kind of titrating those results down and seeing at, you know, at what level can we confidently report uh, variance. And so for us, it's 5%. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty standard. Some labs will go down a little bit lower, um, you know, but it is usually in the 3 to 5% range. I see. If, if I took, you know, let's say we resected on block uh, someone's pancreas cancer and we sliced it into like uh, many, 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 many slices. And let's say we sequence the first few slices and then we sequence the last few slices. Are we going to get all the same mutations on these sequencing results or is there going to be differences? Um, I mean, so that that's a tough question. I would say, I mean... First of all, I, I really don't think that there's been enough research in that huh. um, uh -huh. to answer it incredibly empirically. Um, and, and, you know, I personally think that that's, that's something that we really need to understand better yeah. is, is what should we be sending to pathology? What differences should we expect to find? Does it differ by tumor type? Does it differ yeah. by stage? Yeah, yeah. Metastatic status? Yeah. Um, I think that's all important. But, you know, I mean, we do have obviously clinical experience with that. And so... I would say that, I mean, in general, if somebody has, especially, you know, a canonical driver mutation in a certain cancer, sure. we're going to find that in, in any sample that's yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so say a BRAF V600 exactly. in melanoma, that's going to be everywhere. Right. That's going to be everywhere. Right. Exactly. Right. And so, um, you know, with, with most of the well-described mutations, I would say they tend to be present in, you know, wherever you look for them, basically. Um, but when you're talking about you know, lower, um, you know, kind of subclonal mutations like you were addressing earlier. Yeah. Or when you're talking about, um, you know, sending a, a lymph node with metastases yeah, in it versus yeah. the primary tumor. Um, there are, there are definitely are differences. And, you know, so that's, like I said, I think that's something that really needs to be explored going forward. 
Um, another question that, or sort of issue that comes to mind with me is, you know, dealing with patients in tumor board and having old samples, you know, after, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. a year old or yeah, something like yeah. that, and, and they have new metastases, and do we need to sample the new metastasis? Yeah. Um, can we use the old sample? Um, uh, there really are open questions in, in, in my view. Yeah, I think listeners would like to check out maybe some of the work by Charlie Swanton uh, across the pond in the UK, something called TraceRx. He sequenced, uh, you know, say a patient with kidney cancer, many, many sites, and he's often found that uh, not all the mutations line up. They're truncal mutations and they're, they're branch mutations. But anyway, back mm-hmm. to what you were saying. So you were, you were taking us, you have, a, you have an arc to what you want to talk about. You were taking us through NGS, uh, the major advantages. Um, uh, to be honest, there are not a lot of disadvantages. Are there disadvantages to NGS? I, I mean, I guess it, it sort of depends on you know, what you mean by disadvantages. I think, I mean, one of the biggest disadvantages from, from my view is it's in, an incredibly intensive process yeah. from, you know, step one to results reporting. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of intermediate steps and, you know, processing the sample, running the sequencing, running the bioinformatics um, after we've done the sequencing. The, the, those each take a good full day, um, you know, of work or of computation. Um, you know, and so once you start adding up all of those, you know, there definitely is a significant amount of time that's required to do NGS. And so, you know, I think depending on the clinical scenario, that can be more or less acceptable. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely quicker for us, you know, if, if a patient has, you know, concern for myeloproliferative neoplasm yeah. and you want to test JAK2, that, that's, that's a much um, faster test for us to turn around. And it also takes much less hands-on laboratory um, work. And, and, and what so, is that test? So let's say I send a patient down, uh, you know, I send you a sample of blood and I ask you to test them for JAK2. So you're going to test yeah. leukocytes, right? You're going to test the leukocyte for, for JAK2 mutation. And how do you test it? Yeah. So um, there's different methodologies for it, but the one that we use and one that's pretty common is what is called allele-specific PCR. Okay. And so basically what that does is it, it uses either a primer that's specific for the the genetic change in JAK2 V617F yeah. or a probe that's specific for that genetic change. Yeah. And we basically ask the question, we run PCR and we ask the question, are we getting a signal at the end of that? Or, or nothing, because if you if you don't have the mutation, the probe won't bind at all, period. End of story. Correct. There'll be yeah, no yeah. amplification. Yeah, I see. There will be no amplification. Yeah, you can put in a wild type probe and sort of, yeah, you yeah, know, just to check. Um, yeah. Just to check. Yeah. But basically, yeah, you're looking for amplification of that specific genetic change. And I so, see. an important thing to remember with any of the, you know, limited single gene assays is, you know, to really understand what methodology they're using because um, depending on the methodology, it could miss, you know, a mutation one base pair over. Um, if that wasn't what it was searching for. So, and for instance, so, let's take um, let's take melanoma V600 because it could be mm-hmm. V600E or it could be V600 something else, maybe V600I yes. or something. So, yep. so potentially you could have um, a probe that is only looking for V600E and miss uh, a different V600K, for instance. You could, yes. That would be a limitation to doing it that way. And so... Because of that, in our lab, we actually do Sanger sequencing oh, for BRAF, oh. and we sequence across that region because we know that there are multiple options, you know, kind of as you're getting at, 
as to what the underlying mutation could be, even though it's still in the same codon, mm-hmm. you know, that 600, codon 600. How do you um, do, um, how do you do EGFR? Because now you got, you're talking about a couple of EGFR and lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer activating yeah. EGFR. You got a couple of different exons to play with now. How do you do that in your lab? Yeah, so we would do, we would also do Sanger sequencing. And so it would be separate reactions for each exon. Oh, really? Um, and what yeah, exons do you pursue? Uh, You're double oh checking the list. Okay. I would have to look it up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, actually, uh, let them. We so we actually, I guess we send out EGFR. Ah. Oh. Thinking we did it in house. I yeah. see. Okay. But so for KRAS and RAS, like tests like that. Yeah. You t- uh, you send those out as well? Are oh, you doing house? Okay. No, we do those in house. Yeah. So my colon cancer patient, I'm looking for extended spectrum RAS mutations. You'll Sanger sequence, uh, in house. Exactly. Yep. So let me ask you. Um, I don't know. One thing I'm very curious about is, like, obviously in lung cancer, there are many, many driver mutations doctors want to know. They want to know uh, EGFR activating mutations. We want to know ALK rearrangements. We're going to come to fusions in a little bit. Uh, We want to know ROS1 alterations, fusions typically. We want to know BRAF mutations. Those are the Mm -hmm. four, you know, uh, targets. And I guess now TREC, but let's be honest, it's uh, super rare. Uh, when you see one, you call me. Uh, and then I guess coming down the pipeline, RET. Um, okay, so these are the ones we look for. Um, uh, but one of the things we don't talk so much about is the delay. You know, um, sometimes we send off NGS and it'll be three, four weeks before we have results. Uh, obviously, clinically, it's not so good. I mean, you, want, you don't want to wait. You know, if you don't have to wait, you don't want to wait. Uh, some people, what they do at their laboratories, do a quick EGFR test, like really quickly, because, of course, that's the most common. And then, you know, send off uh, an NGS panel uh, later. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what, how do you guys handle that sort of the lung cancer workup in, in, your, in your laboratory? Yeah, so we, the majority of testing that we do is for, um, we would do the single gene PCR tests for KRAS, NRAS, um, and some of the other ones are actually send-outs. And so for us, it's kind of a, you know... You don't know what's a, coming a mish, first. A mishmash of certain tests that are done in-house and certain tests that are sent out. And so, you know, that that definitely, you know, highlights some of the issues with, you know, figuring out exactly what platform is best to do these on um, because... You know, like like here, we, we only offer tests for certain genes, and so it, it, it kind of can make the management of that and, and the results, I guess, less streamlined than you'd hope for. Yeah. Um, so in theory, that that could be one of the benefits of NGS is being able to, you know, getting back to the, you know, the, really the advance of NGS being multiplexing is we can test all these genes at once. Yeah. But then it introduces that delay. Yeah. And so, um, you know there's really not a perfect answer that anybody's figured out at this point. Yeah. I think one thing interesting to me is like all of the randomized trials we have for the driver mutation are like, if you have the driver mutation, uh, do you do better with the the therapy or not? And that's a fair trial, but I'm interested in a randomized trial that doesn't exist, which is, um, in one arm, you test for just two driver mutations quickly, and then you give therapy right away. Um, in the other arm, you wait until you get NGS results, which is what a lot of people are doing these days. They're delaying through treatment. And, and thus, in my hypothetical randomized trial, if there is any penalty that is accumulating from delay, that is going to be paid by the side that's waiting, you know, uh, if you were randomizing earlier than that. But that's something like we just don't know because that's never been captured well in any sort of study. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would I think that would definitely be a really informative study to see, um, you know, and it, it would have the potential to really change what what we do also right. in terms right. of practice, because, you know, I think, you know, they're really like the amount of information that NGS generates really is a double edged sword, because on one hand, it's so appealing. Um, it feels like we can ask so many questions, but I think we really need to have a clinical hierarchy to understand, well, what's the utility of each of these questions that we're asking and which one should we prioritize first? Yes. Um, because I, I really don't think we know that right now. And, you know, like you're saying, um, you know, I'm not sure people are looking at it exactly in that way. And so I, I would hate to see us down the road in 10 years, which unfortunately maybe where we will be and still have never really looked at that. Yes. Um, because I think in a lot of these cases that, you know, there really are a small number of genetic changes that are well validated in that tumor. And, and it really begs the question of, you know, should we look specifically at, at a much smaller number of genes and kind of triage from there and then do a deeper dive if necessary, or, you know, really what should the kind of the hierarchical stepwise approach be? Do you ever find in your molecular tumor boards that, you know, we don't have to go into specifics, but say, um, you know, say hypothetically there's like a patient with pancreas cancer with a BRAF V600 mutation or um, a patient with an FGFR mutation with cholangiocarcinoma or, um, or, or even a patient with um, multiple myeloma who has a BRAF mutation. Um, uh, and of course, there'll be a temptation to reach for the BRAF drug. Uh, but say in the instance of the myeloma patient, you know, we don't know that the BRAF drug has responses. And in fact, in the venmorafenib basket trial by David Hyman, it doesn't have responses in multiple myeloma. Um, so do yeah. you ever see cases like that where you say, look, this, it's fair to say this is a driver mutation, but just maybe not in this cancer? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a recurrent problem. Um, you know, I, I mean, I would say I, I'm not sure a day goes by looking at NGS results where we don't see you know, a mutation in a gene that just really isn't that well described in that cancer. Yes. And, um, you know, especially when there's a, you know, quote, targeted therapeutic. Yes. Um, for that drug, it, it, you know, it raises really thorny clinical questions. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, as a fellow, especially, I'm still kind of struggling with how to, how to deal with those even, you know, from, from a reporting view from our side. How much weight do you put in that? Um, because I think, you know, like you're saying, I mean, the evidence is is often missing in a lot of cancers. But for some of the cancers we've looked at, you know, something that might be a drive a clear driver in one tumor type is not a clear driver in another tumor type. Yes. Um, and so that can be really tricky. And the, the other day we we actually had a case we did sequencing on a patient with myeloma and. Um, you know, found some mutations that are more common in myeloid neoplasms. And, you know, it sort of makes you wonder, are we finding some sort of, you know, are these underlying like clonal hematopoiesis yes, changes? Yes. Or are we truly looking at the melanoma? And at this point, it, it we really don't know. And so it, it makes it, it, interpreting those findings really difficult. Yeah. You know, I one of the things that I, makes me think about in this space is that, you know, it's easy for people who think every cancer patient should have NGS to say, let me tell you the story about the person I sequenced, I found a target and I drugged it and they had response. 
Okay, that's yeah. easy to say. It's harder to point out, let me tell you the story about the myeloma patient I sequenced. I found V600E. I was tempted. I used venmorafenib. I didn't give them, you know, uh, another, proteos, an- another proteasome inhibitor, and they didn't respond. And so I've actually kind of harmed them because b- I used information that wasn't well validated to change them from an appropriate standard of care to a non-standard agent, and they didn't derive benefit, and they probably would have derived benefit from a standard agent. And that is like the narrative that I think gets lost. And and anyway, my, my view is the only way to settle which narrative is more common is, of course, randomization, but that's just my two cents. Um, but let me ask you this. You do a lot of NGS. I, I've heard often people say that fusion events are very difficult to detect on NGS. Do you feel that that is the case? Is there truth to that? Uh, what do you do to tackle the fusions? Yeah, so that's definitely a really um, kind of active area right now in the molecular pathology world. And so I think the first caveat is to always say that um, NGS is is a methodology and not a specific test. So it's definitely possible to detect fusions by NGS. The question is, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, And so where it becomes really tricky and sort of why it's really tricky right now is because the majority of clinical labs that are offering NGS, including many... Um, of the private companies that are offering NGS testing, they're only testing DNA. Okay. And, you know, as people may or may not remember, the the exome or the protein coding portion of our DNA is actually only one and a half percent of our genome. And so introns, the non-coding portions of DNA, are 98 plus percent of our genome. And so when we're looking at DNA sequencing, the thing that's tricky with fusions is that, you know, a fusion transposes one gene next to another gene, um, or exons from one gene next to exons of another gene, but the actual break point, so the part of the DNA where that break happens to allow the fusion to occur, is typically located in an intron. Mm-hmm. And so introns are massive compared to the exons, Yes, and so it really winds up becoming looking for a needle in a haystack yes. to go searching for a breakpoint in the uh, introns of DNA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's really um, where the challenge lies at, at this point. And so kind of what people are moving towards to try to solve that problem is they're moving towards sequencing RNA as well as DNA. I see. That will get it. But let me ask you yeah. this. Um, I mean, do you believe the premise? So this was a premise that was, uh, you know, I, 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 I had had this feeling. I mean, I read it in a, in a review article that David Hyman and colleagues wrote, where they argued that fusion events are more likely to be drivers than mutations because, by chance alone, in a genomically unstable cell, there will be mutations, even in you know genes that uh, are typically drivers, but even though they're not doing any driving. But fusion events, those are rarer genetic events, and if they occur, um, it's almost like saying there's a reason why this happened. Um, they're more likely to be sort of a, a, a real driver mutation and a druggable alteration. Do you, is there evidence that that is the case? Do you feel that that's true? Um, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm not 100% sure about there being evidence for that. Sure. Um, and I think one of the things I think that's, that's tough is we actually don't understand fusion super well in solid tumors because they're actually really hard to test for without NGS. 
um, by cytogenetics where you have to culture cells and stuff. And, and let's, let's um, explain that a little bit. And so in, in contrast with hematologic malignancies, it's harder to test for fusions in solid. It's harder to look for fusions in solid tumors. Uh, explain why that's the case, because you can't arrest them in metaphase. That's the reason, right? Yeah. I mean, so the, the biggest reason gets to the fact that, you know, when we're talking about heme malignancies, we have not always, but often we have a peripheral blood sample or a bone marrow biopsy. Yes. And so from the molecular pathology point of view, the reason that that's important is because those specimens didn't go into formalin. Yes. Um, so formalin is great because it fixes tissue. It allows us to look at it under the microscope. But in the process of fixing tissue, it cross-links DNA and it damages it pretty severely. And so, and it makes the cells not be able to be cultured inside yes. of genetics. And so it, it really hampers the ability to to look at fusions because historically that's always been done in the cytogenetic lab, which would culture the cells. So, you, you know, you can grow up a bunch of your cancerous cells from yes. your acute leukemia or your myeloma or something like that. And once you've enriched for those cells, you can do karyotype or fish to look for your fusion event. Yes. Um, in solid tumors, we're left with formalin fixed tissue often. So we can't um, culture it in the lab. And so you can still do fish on solid tumors. We can detect them in, in solid tumors, but it's really not as robust as it is in heme malignancies. Um, you know, because, because we can't culture them. And so for that reason, a lot of the research in, you know, fusion events has, has kind of lagged behind in yes. solid tumors and especially our ability to detect them, um, clinically. So, you know, I know it, it, there's really an active, uh, research program going on now, kind of looking at, uh, fusion events that we really weren't able to detect before. Yes. Um, now with some of these sequencing methods, um, but you know, kind of circling way back to your your actual your, your general question, um, you know, to me at, at least, just thinking about it, I, I do think there's probably some truth to the idea that you know, if a fusion event happened, and if the, the cells are still alive for whatever period of time yes. after the event happened and yes. still growing, yes, um, you know, it, it does seem to me that it would be more likely to have been a, a driver event, yes, yeah, than, I agree, than a, yeah. you know, a random mutation that you see. Yeah. Um, a, yeah. a byproduct of a of a fractured genome. Okay. Exactly. Uh, what what are the other topics that you think are important for for listeners to know who don't don't get to see the world of molecular pathology? So I I mean I think um, I think we've covered a lot of it. Um, I guess what I would say from our point of view is. You know, I always like to put in an, a plug for the clinical lab because I think that there's a lot of work we can do with our local oncologists to help tailor a panel for what they really want to look at. Yeah. Um, you know, I know right now there's a lot of companies that are offering different sequencing um, tests or, you know, they may even have additional things they're looking at, sometimes, you know, RNA expression or, or things like that. Um, you know, so there are obviously clinical scenarios where maybe a certain test is preferred in a certain patient, um, but I think sort of as a, a larger, like, just kind of planning and, and strategic development thing for, for any hospital, any cancer system, 
is, you know, really having a close relationship with your lab, I, I think can really pay dividends because, you know, you guys are the ones on the front lines reading the research specific to the tumors that you're treating. Um, you know, and you're often aware of some of these, you know, new findings, um, sometimes before we are. And so, you know, having that interface with your lab can allow them to incorporate things that you see on the horizon, um, you know, maybe certain mutations mm -hmm. or certain fusions that um, you're looking at with clinical trials or whatever it might be, um, you know, there's a lot that can be gained, I think, from, from a productive relationship. And so, um, you know, I've definitely gotten a small window into that, into seeing how we've, you know, developed our test and some of the input that the oncologists here have had into that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as a pathologist, um, I always just think it's important to remind people that we're, you know, we're really there to help you guys. And, um, you know, so if you guys have anything that is of interest to put on a test or questions or, or things that you think would be useful, um, you know, definitely reach out. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been an illuminating discussion. Uh, no pun intended, Illumina. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we'd love to have you back to discuss, uh, you know, hopefully in the context of a new study, uh, some of the ins and outs of the molecular uh, pathology. So thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.